Now with the virtual world, we're actually able to engage with scientists from different parts of the world and then connect with their networks. There has become sort of broad recognition that we have a responsibility in higher education to provide our PhD students with a broader set of skills and competencies. That can be another way of getting information that you might not know. You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University delivering career narratives and know-how to supplement your doctoral studies. Hello, and welcome back to Vitamin PhD. This is episode two of the research skills season. As a reminder, my name is Matt, and I'm a first-year computer engineering PhD student here at BU. Hi, folks, and I'm Heather Mooney, a six-year PhD candidate in sociology here at Boston University, and today we'll be chatting with Professor Michael Jennert of WPI, or Worcester Polytechnic Institute, about research process and design. Hi, I'm Mike Jennert, Professor of Robotics Engineering at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, WPI. I also have appointments in computer science, which, which was my home department before we created robotics, and electrical and computer engineering. Um, I work with many organizations, including the ARM Institute. ARM is the Advanced Robotics for Manufacturing Institute in, in Pittsburgh. I'm the WPI rep to um, some of the committees there. Excellent, perfect. Thank you so much for telling us a little bit about yourself. And the first question that we have for you today is what is research? For me, research is um, asking interesting questions and then figuring out the answers to those. That's the fun part. And then kind of the harder part is communicating that, whether it's building a class around what you've learned and also um, uh, writing those uh, papers, both for journals, so those are the archival papers that take a lot of work, um, and the conference papers that communicate those ideas really quickly to your colleagues. And I'll say also your friends, because your your peers elsewhere are and should be your friends. So it's really about asking not just questions, but asking good questions. You want to get good answers. So to ask a so to, so to get a good answer, you have to ask a good question. If you want to get a great answer, you have to ask a really great question. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for sharing all that. And now can you distill it down to just a few words? As we mentioned in the last episode, our overarching question of this season is kind of a challenging one. In three to five words, finish this sentence. Research is what? Fun, hard, playful, and exciting. Wow, that was a really good answer. Very concise. Uh, next, we're interested in knowing a bit more about your experiences as an academic. So what was something you thought that was true going into graduate school that now you've come to realize is false? When I started my academic career, I had no idea how universities worked, despite having spent 10 years in one. <laughs> Right. I mean, sure, you see your professors and you go to classes and you've got an advisor, you do research. Let somebody ask a question of our audience. What is the business you're in? It's when you're a PhD student or thinking of becoming one. See, that's a question that you'd never really ask or think about. On the other hand, academia is a kind of business, right? Universities are businesses like any, like any other. Well, we're a bit different, right? It's 
we're not profit making. <laughs> yeah, I, I laugh because we don't make a profit, but we might have more revenue than we have expenses. Hmm. But we're nonprofit. <laughs> but like any, but like any business, you know, we have inputs, we have outputs, we have processes. But you never think about those. On the other hand, if you were, let's say, in one of the trades, say you were a plumber, you'd have a good idea before you even started how how that business works, right? You get calls from clients. You might work in a, uh, for a company doing industrial plumbing, whatever. You, you kind of know that already, and and yet we turn out new employees, i.e., PhDs and postdocs, who have no clue what the business model is at the university. And you don't need you don't need to know that, right? You can have a great career just doing your thing like everyone else does, right? That's that's okay. But you might, as a curious person with a scientific or engineering bent, you might want to ask the question, what are we doing here? How does it work? You know, it's something you never think about as a PhD student because you're so busy trying to solve the next problem and, and get that next paper published and helping your advisor do X, Y, and Z, right? If you're a TA, you're helping with the classes. You know, there's, there's money involved, there's processes and all that. And it's important to know that. Um, and and we're, not, we're not told that going in. We're also not told, um, by and large, how teaching works, right? We get PhDs for our research. Then you go in and spend a big chunk of your time on teaching and how much you spend teaching versus research versus service, that'll vary from place to place. But everywhere you're gonna go, you'll do all three of those to some extent, right? And yet we're, we're trained as PhDs just on the research side. We're hired for the research, right? We have these great lists of publications that get, our, that get um, the attention of that all important hiring committee. <laughs> and yet you're hired because of that. And then you're gonna be spending a lot of your time on teaching. And um, so we don't do a great job of um, educating our junior, our upcoming, up and coming faculty on the business we're in, including the teaching part of that. So that's something that, yeah, I learned that kind of fast when I got hired though. It's like, oh yeah, I gotta write proposals and I gotta teach these classes and how do I, even start that, oh my God, no idea. As a TA, what do you do? Probably grading, homeworks, maybe exams, giving office hours and helping students who are you know, having questions and answering emails. But you're not, as TA, you're not engaged in course design, right? You don't think about, hmm, how's this course structured? How does it flow? What's the professor thinking? You're, the professor you're, you're working for as a TA, will probably not volunteer their thoughts to you. So you have to ask, like, um, professor, I'm curious, what are your, you know, what are your course goals? What do you really want to do? And what's like, it, he'll, he, they might say it's in the syllabus. Yeah, but what are you really thinking, right? What's behind that? Um, and they will almost surely be thrilled you asked and be happy to share their thoughts, but they often won't volunteer it. So. Um, you could ask them, how did you come to this approach to teaching? Because there are many ways you can teach. There's just, there's not one size fits all. Thanks for that, Professor Jannard. Now we're going to take a quick pause and hear from our graduate student panel. What is something they believed going into graduate school that they now feel differently about? Um, well, I definitely thought as a graduate student, there comes a point where you feel that you're a genuine expert about something. 
And I think that now as I enter my fourth and fifth year, while I am very confident in the skills that I've acquired and I'm very confident on the topics that I do research on, I think that in research in general and in academia, you never truly feel like you have everything, you know, known and everything you sort of have under your belt. I think it's a constant learning process. Um, and that's something that I didn't really understand coming into my graduate um, studies. Um, I guess the other thing is more like on the actual process of going through graduate school. I thought that you know, as a grad student, you'd be in the lab or doing your research in a library just 24-7, sort of just solely doing your work on an individual level. And I think now that I'm a fourth year uh, student, I sort of realized that that was a complete misconception. And it is so collaborative. You're constantly interacting with others. It's not a sole process, which I did think... I, to an extent, I thought, well, you know, I can do this on my own. Like, I enjoy sort of being in my own, like, solitude. Um, and now, as, like, a researcher, I realize, like, that's not the best way to conduct your research, not to just rely on yourself, but you need to form networks. You need to form connections within your field and outside of your field. And also just on, like, a personal, like, growth level as, you know, someone who's still young like it's not the greatest idea to like isolate yourself during your like 20s and 30s <laughs> remember i was i was talking to a professor in my undergrad who was like encouraging me to to pursue graduate studies and um she told me that like and, and this is a professor saying this so i really believed it and she said like getting into um, like a professorship is, is like being paid to read and i really believed that and now, like, I'm like, did you mean emails? You had to mean emails. Because, <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I don't think I really expected as much of, like, kind of the, the bureaucratic side of things. Um, so that, you know, which is fine. It, you know, I think there's a lot more bureaucracy to, to grown-up jobs than, than I think we, we tell our younger selves, you know. So, so there's a little bit of that. But, um, you know, I think, too, I... I I don't think I really understood quite like all of the different things that that you do have to do. So I still had this kind of mistaken impression that you went to graduate school to learn. And I do think it's a huge learning process, but I think it's not just about learning what other people have said and you can pair it, but instead learning about what you can say and how you can learn to say new things. Um, so I think that was probably my biggest perspective shift is like, I'm not here to be a bookworm anymore. Um, I still am. I still do an insane amount of reading. Um, but I also now read not just to, to hear what other people have said, um, but to digest that knowledge and, and figure out what ingredients that I can use in my own, you know, knowledge production. And, you know, in undergraduate, you're very much rewarded for knowing lots of things that lots of people have said. Once you get to graduate school, it doesn't like you, it doesn't matter that you can parrot off all of these things. Instead, you have to be pushed to, well, who said the most relevant thing? Um, you know, how is what this perhaps less, you know, quote unquote, relevant person to the field 
actually contribute a core idea that you'll build off of in your own research. Oh man, excellent answers. Our grad student panel like knocks it out of the park as usual. As a reminder, our grad student panel there in order was Amanda Ruiz, a pathobiology student at Brown University, Dana Ahern, a feminist studies scholar at UCSB, and Kristen Zock, a sociology student here at BU. And as another reminder to our listeners, our grad student panel will be answering some of the questions we asked to our main guests in each episode. We really wanted to get perspectives of current PhD students in different programs and at different universities to help give a little more context to some of the topics we'll be covering this season. Uh, Heather, I'm going to put you on the spot. As a sixth year, I'm interested to hear your answer to this question, too. Oh, wow. To be honest, I've learned so much. I think one of the biggest changes and takeaways for me is the importance of writing your narrative as a scholar. Um, So what I mean by that is I have a really interdisciplinary background and a lot of different interests. So my CV includes everything from studies of the effects of solitary confinement in supermax prisons to field studies examining gender and status in college parties in the Boston area. And yes, I've been to way too many college parties as a 30-year-old. And one day, my advisor sat me down and told me that, you know, while the work I was doing was good, I really needed to work on my narrative as a scholar essentially how to carve out, explain, identify my niche as someone with such diverse interest. What's their connective tissue? And how do I tell my story as an academic? Figuring out how to situate and explain my interests and how they connect is not something I anticipated during graduate school, especially as someone who's interested in literally everything. Cultivating that depth of knowledge and scholarly identity is really important. So definitely make sure you don't lose that through your process. Anyways, back to Professor Michael Janert. Professor Janert, we were wondering what brought you to academic research. Oh, so in, in my case, I wanted to be a scientist since second grade. <laughs> I have the book report I wrote on Einstein when I was in second grade. So no doubt where I was headed. Of course, I had no idea what that really meant, but I mean, that's why I went and got my, my doctorate um, was to realize that ambition and um, become a card carrying scientist as it were and get to work on those interesting problems. Yeah, so, um, so I do robotics at WPI, and um, I came to that in a kind of a funny route. So let me go back. My master's degree was on simulation and control of an electromechanical system back around 1980. All right, so mm, that's a while ago. Um, yeah, and uh, my PhD was on computer vision. Well, you put those together and it's robotics. Ha, huh. all right, so great preparation for it. So when I was the uh, computer science department head, um, I led a team that created a program, degree program in robotics engineering. And because I led the team, I ended up being the head of that program. And now with its own department, I'm no longer the head, but that's kind of how I, slid sideways into robotics, um, not really planning on it, but realizing, hey, that's what we're doing, so I may as well be the one to lead this group. And uh, so my research now is almost entirely on robotics, having done other things along the way, Uh, biomedical engineering, robotics, um, well, let me say, signal processing and stuff like that along the way. Um, But you never know where you're gonna end up. Um, Just, you know, keep your eyes open and when things seem right, just jump in and do it. And a real important thing is 
which problems do you decide not to bother with? Right. There's so many questions you could ask. Um, so one thing about um, working on a research problem is ask, all right, this is an interesting question. Does anybody care? And I've written papers um, that I was very proud of until I realized that no one gave a fig about it. Like, oh, that's a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and by the way, if you want to get funded for research, and if you're in engineering and science, um, you have to, you got to convince somebody that this is a problem that's worth spending money on. So yeah, they, someone has to care about the problem, not just you, because it's intellectually challenging. You know, you're welcome to work on those problems in your spare time, but they don't get you anywhere, right? They're not meaningful. So uh, a friend of mine had this great quote, uh, Professor uh, Mika Hoffrey. He said, problems that are worth attack prove their worth by fighting back. So if you ask a hard question and you find yourself stumped by it, that might mean it's a very good question to be asking and you just work on it even harder. Um, so uh, that's part of the choosing problems thing is make sure it's worthy of your effort and someone cares about it besides you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Motivation and interest is a really key point in research process and design. That's, that's a very useful point. So can you tell us a bit about a memorable project you've worked on? and what made it so memorable. All right, that would have to be, it was, it was I'll call it research. Um, we worked um, on the DARPA Robotics Challenge, the DRC. So this was a challenge posed by DARPA to um, build or program a humanoid, a, a robot to perform a bunch of tasks. So this was, this came out about uh, 2012, 20, 2013. Um, and you could either build a robot from scratch to do this, or you could use a humanoid robot that they supplied. So these were tasks um, that robots couldn't really do very well yet, like um, climb stairs, um, use tools, uh, open doors, turn valves, pull switches, um, things like that that you might want to have a robot do. And the motivating problem here was when the... Um, Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plants um, had that horrible meltdown. People couldn't go in there. So how do you repair or at least um, how do you mitigate the damage in a reactor? If you can't send humans, you have to send a robot. So robots couldn't do this stuff, right? They couldn't climb ladders. They couldn't open the doors, all that stuff. <laughs> they still can't, but we're, we're better at it. Yeah, so that was a really hard set of problems uh, to try and tackle because it was beyond the current capabilities. Um, and we could do bits and pieces of it, but never really as a whole working system. Um, so that was the DARPA Robotics Challenge. And so um, I led a team of, of eh, about 40 people at a couple of universities to work on this. And we got um, a robot from DARPA. It was the um, Boston Dynamics Atlas robot, you know, the six foot three, 400 pound hulking monster. Um, it's uh, descendants, you know, you see them on, on the YouTube videos doing all kinds of cool stuff. Um, it still can't open doors real well, but yeah, some of them, some of them do. Anyway, so um, yeah, so just working on this really hard problem for a few years with this great team. Um, it was just a, 
it was very challenging. It was very hard. It was a lot of fun to do. Uh, took infinite amounts of work. So we self-funded it to start off because we just couldn't start with zero money. So I begged, borrowed, and stole. Well, I didn't steal, but I, I cajoled, right? I, I arm twisted to get enough money to get us going. And from that start, a few, yeah, a couple of tens of thousands of dollars, non-trivial, but, but not a huge amount. And we got several million in research funding from DARPA. So it was a, it was a great, it was a great, Return on investment, right? ROI, a term you don't hear in academia, but man, it does apply, right? It really, you think about, I'm investing time and money, but I wanna get more than that out of it. And, and by the way, so on topic of ROI, I know I'm digressing, but this is where, if you're hired by a university, let's be optimistic. When you're hired by a university, they're gonna spend a lot of money to get you. Right? In the humanities, some, maybe not a huge amount, in science and engineering, universities will spend a ton of money on you, the so-called oh, startup package, for example. And you may get course releases your first year or two. Right? And, and in a sense, the university is going to lose money on you in your first couple of years in a big way. But they are or rather they should be investing in you. So it pays off in the long run. Again, that business thinking. And they may be not even going to articulate that. Maybe your department head doesn't even think about that as an investment with return, but they should. And if you think about it as a member of the faculty, that will help you to understand the business that you're in. They're spending money on you and gosh darn it, you gotta pay it back in some way. And, you know, it might be with funding, it might be just teaching a lot of students, whatever it is, um, but we're investing in you and we want you to succeed. Wow, that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. Matt and I have been discussing research questions. They structure and direct all of our research projects. So we were wondering, how do you go about structuring research questions? Yeah, so you wanna ask, what do we, not yet know that would be interesting. How would you, how would you do this? We don't know how to do it yet. Um, and then you say, all right, who's worked on similar things? Because if you don't know how to solve this problem, but someone else has, has already solved it, then there's not as much value in doing it again. Um, however, a little aside, that said, how do you know that that work is really valid and um, uh, works in slightly different problems. So there is some value in repeating others' research to see if you get the same or similar answers, or maybe they were just out to lunch and you don't agree with, right? And by the way, it's hard to get funded to repeat someone else's stuff. You wanna do new things. So there's a challenge, but we don't do enough of that confirmation work. But all right, let's stick, let's stick to the, the, the novel, pushing the sort of the, of the art boundaries out. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you really have to think of what interests you in this area. What can we not yet do? Um, what are the, you know, what are the hard questions? What do you want to do that's important? And then, of course, it's is it really important? Do people care about it? Um, and in some cases, can you get that work funded? Um, one thing I like to do is um, I've got a research question. Make up a really short PowerPoint. And 
show it to some friends. You know, five minute. Here's the research question. Here's how I want to tackle it. Ask them, what do you think? Um, and get some feedback from my colleagues who might become collaborators. Maybe they're just trusted friends who can tell me, oh, Mike, that's a stupid freaking idea, you know? Or, yeah, no, don't bother. Like, oh, okay. Um, all right. And then you don't waste much more time on it. Um, or if it's interesting, they'll give you feedback and say, yeah, but have you thought about this? Right? Oh, oh no. Oh, that's even a better question. Geez, I wish I thought of that. Right? Um, so, um, writing ideas down and then sharing them is a great way to make those ideas and questions more on point and focused. And it gives you feedback at a really early stage of the research that you might not get otherwise. And you spend, you know, infinite time on a proposal, it doesn't get funded, like, oh, darn. Well, there's a reason for it. If you got that early feedback, um, it would have been better. We would have gotten a better proposal. You know, might or might not have gotten funded or it would have been more worthwhile. So, and also there's the fact that um, your friends might have research methodologies that you don't know or hadn't thought of. So, oh, that's a better way to solve that exact same problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, one person only has one brain, right? But three of them together, you get thrice the uh, brain power. It's even better if those are diverse colleagues who maybe are of different, ethnic origins, different genders, different fields who understand what you're working on, but bring different perspectives to that. You don't want to be in an echo chamber. The worst one's the one in your own head, right? Because everything you think of is a great idea. Of course, those are, you know, we always think of great ideas. Yeah, but get out of that echo chamber, you know, expand your horizons. It's trite, but think outside the box, right? Get other people's boxes, you know, <laughs> make bigger boxes. No box, no walls at all, who knows? Oh yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I really like the emphasis on practical, relational, and disciplinary questions and thinking about research questions and the overall design. So can you tell us a little bit about how you choose a research method? Oftentimes, we, we think of tackling problems from the bottom up. What do we know? What do we almost know? And that applies both to research and to education when you wanted to let's say build a new course or even more broadly a new curriculum what, do, what are we teaching now what do we need to add to that and so on and so on which is a good way to get started on these problems however to tackle them you should really think about taking a top-down approach right what's the what's your vision for how this might turn out right so in robotics I might say, geez, you know, our, our, our robot can't manipulate dishes out of a dishwasher yet. Oh, that's an interesting problem. But if you think about top down, it's like, all right, maybe you have a vision that you wanna have robots help people stay in their homes longer as they age to assist them. All right, you might do the same research answering it both ways, but you'll probably do a whole lot better and, and think more clearly if you think, Top down, what's that vision? And, and by the way, if you wanna have collaborators, they may not care about solving your dishwasher um, problem. But if you think about how could we enable elderly people to live in their homes longer, besides working with roboticists and computer scientists 
and mechanical engineers and electrical engineers, you might end up working with sociologists and biomedical engineers and um, psychologists perhaps on the interactions of machines and people, right? And even if you don't work with them ultimately, just talking to them would be helpful and gives you thoughts about what's an important problem to solve. What's a, what's a socially important problem to solve? Um, and so having that vision and a, and a mission that you're on to make this thing happen, you then ask, okay, what are some outcomes we wanna see from this work? And then work towards getting those outcomes to happen. And as engineers, well, I'm an engineer by training. So generally taught to think top down for, you know, for problem solving. Um, but then we sort of, it's easier to slide into this bottom up. Yeah, what do we already have? What do we already know? Yeah, that's so true. The question itself really invites the method. And the question overall is tangled in a bunch of social relationships, including question about money and funding. It's a great point. And Matt, I know you had a question for Professor Janert, given his expertise in industry. Do you want to ask that now? Yes, yes, absolutely, I do. Uh, can you tell us a bit about collaborating with industry as an academic? So as someone who came from industry and is now working to become an academic, I'm interested in how that collaboration informs your research. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So here's a, a TLA you need to know. TLA, three-letter acronym. That is um, TRL, Technology Readiness Level. And it goes from one being really fundamental research up to nine, which is essentially product development and, and refinement. There's a whole list of those. And so it's important to know just where you are on the TRL, right? TRL one questions maybe won't produce economic results for 20, 30, 40 years. Who knows? Maybe not at all, but they're interesting, deep questions. TRL one should be TRL nine ought to be in market next year. And as academics, you generally don't want to tackle TRL eight and nine problems. Those are going to be industry kinds of things. And TRL ones take a real lot of a uh, huge amount of time and effort, and not everyone does them. Um, but some universities are really good at that, right? So your Stanford's, MIT's, Carnegie Mellon's might do a lot of the TRL one, two, three research, and some higher level as well. And other universities have different niches. In the case of the ARM Institute, uh, most of that work is in the, I'll say, middle TRLs that are, you know, a couple, three years away from being actually deployed, but they're interesting researchy problems. Um, but the, uh, um, because the ARM Institute is focusing on robotics for manufacturing, we want to see results that are applicable in the fairly short term. Now, um, it may not be turned into a product or a process right away, but there ought to be a pretty clear path to that. So what's an example problem? Not one that I, one that I didn't work on, but um, was how would you, how would you get uh, a robot to help um, in laying out fiberglass sheets in manufacturing? That's a very labor-intensive process, okay? You have to have people by hand laying out these sheets and they'll go and cut them to size and you know, put the epoxy down. And 
it's slow and it's expensive. And if you have to build a lot of them, it takes a lot of time and money to do it. And like, could you get a robot to do it? So that's a really interesting researchy question, which would, which would be um, of economic relevance in the pretty short term, like as fast as you could get developed commercially. So um, that's kind of problems that uh, the ARM Institute focuses on. And um, if that fits your inclination and your uh, abilities, by all means, you know, tackle something like that. And some universities are better at those than others, right? Some and some aren't, but um, you have to kind of know what your sweet spot is, both as an individual and your institution. But institutions will have a, a wide range. Well, folks at my university, they're doing TRL one problems and some doing TRL six and seven problems. It spans the gamut. But that's a way to think about just where you're at. And when you're looking at funding, that varies by funding agency, right? So DARPA likes those really hard problems that aren't yet going to have immediate payback. So they do TRL, I'll say two, three, four problems. NSF likes those really hard questions that don't pay off for a long time. Although sometimes they do, you know, sometimes they have immediate paybacks. So, so you know, TRL one might be a kind of NSF hard problem. Um, they wouldn't fund. They wouldn't fund uh, anything that's going to be deployed very soon. That's just not interesting to them. That's someone else. That's someone else's problem. Okay. Um, NIST, different different viewpoint. NIH, different ones. Yeah, they all they all differ. So yeah, all research isn't the same. There's many. It's a wide spectrum of applicabilities. And I've, I'm talking about you know engineering kind of research for the TRLs. But the same questions apply to the humanities. Right? What are the like really deep philosophical problems you might encounter in the humanities? Um, versus what are questions of immediate import, such as I'll say uh, criminal justice kinds of questions that might be relevant to today's just criminal justice system? You know, so um, and then you think about oh, what are the middle middle scale problems? So the, the thinking applies across disciplines. So don't just think, oh, TRL, it's only for engineers. No, it, that, that thinking process, like always, has parallels in other disciplines and fields. Awesome. This is definitely all new to me, but I'm looking forward to mulling it over after our session. And before we wrap up, we were wondering, where do you see your field going? And what about academia in general? Whoa, that, there's a lot there to unpack. Let's, let's talk about robotics first. So the stuff in the robotics labs today is just amazing, right? But it'll take a long time till that gets out into the world as, as robots and products. But it'll happen, right? The, the pressures are, are so intent, intense on making stuff happen. Um, so, but who knows how long it's going to take. Um, 15 years ago, I thought we'd have um, self-driving cars being commonplace in five years. All right, so today, I think it's still five years away. In five years, it'll still be five years away, perhaps, but eventually, you know, eventually um, we're, gonna, we're gonna think about cars that you have to drive the same way we think about horses. It's like, yeah, you could ride a horse if you really wanted to, but why would you, you know, maybe for fun. But if you wanna get from here to there, you get in your self-driving car and it'll take you there and let you off and park itself or whatever happens. If it's you know shared, maybe someone else goes and gets in it later to, to go, who knows? Um, but yeah, so that's the kind of thing. All right, so here's, here's the thought. Um, 
you may have heard the term uh, digital natives, right? So at some point, um, young people were brought up in a digital environment where they always knew you had internet and cell phones, smartphones, right? So, so you are probably um, digital natives yourselves because you just never knew a world without digital stuff, all right? So I'm a digital immigrant, right? It didn't exist when, when I was uh, growing up, right? Helped to create it in some small aspect, but so I think that in the future we'll have autonomy natives, right? People who grow up always surrounded by autonomous devices where where humans never drove cars, so they didn't have to. They never vacuumed. They they never emptied the dishwasher because all that was done by autonomous systems, whether they were robot, whether they call them robots or not. And by the way, we may not call a self-driving car a robot. It's a robot for sure. It'll still be called our car, right? And we'll still have a dishwasher and so on. But we're not going to call them robots. But it, it will surely permeate all aspects of our, of our lives. There's no way it's not going to. Technology only gets better and better and better. And humans, you know, we don't get much better, much faster, not the speed of robotics and computation. And some of these robotics problems, I mean, they really are hard. Um, perception, manipulation, um, these are tough challenges which we still don't do very well. Yeah, right, robots can recognize a bird in the tree from an image, fine. Doesn't know what birds are, what birds do, right? Has no notion of um, birds picking up worms, building nests, feeding their young. So it just sees a bird in an image, ah, that's a bird, all right. Or that's a sparrow, robin, whatever it is. So there's, there's a huge amount we haven't yet done real well and don't really understand how to solve real well that has to happen before robotics becomes as pervasive as it is sure to become, but it is surely going to happen over time. Academia in general will be under um, immense pressure nowadays. Um, one is to be more relevant and one is to be more accessible. Uh, and uh, boy, that's there's a lot of pressure. And as we've seen, some colleges have not survived in the past two years, even before the uh, pandemic. Um, it's a challenging business to be in nowadays. As faculty, it's not quite so much your problem, but if you understand the environment you're in, that'll only help you to, to be better at it. And I, th I think, yeah, most people understand now the value of engineering as as a major and that one can get employed to design stuff and build stuff. But I think people also don't value enough the humanities and social sciences. And I'm not just saying that because Heather's here as a social scientist, but it's, it's true, right? Because, um, oh, I think some of the best engineers have a minor in um, a humanities field or have concentrated you know, taking some courses there. Maybe it's another language, maybe it's philosophy. So they'll be more thoughtful engineers, all right? And more thoughtful scientists and, and thinking more broadly, that's really helpful. Um, you know, getting a degree in let's say philosophy is helpful for, for 
for critical thinking skills and thinking about hard questions um, and thinking about them very deeply. That might be a great preparation. I'm not thinking about PhD level work here, although that's true too, but getting a BS in philosophy, um, boy, you know, if you had that and, and took enough science to pass uh, the MCAT exams and went to medical school, you would do great. And I think, um, you know, admissions committees want to see folks with a diverse background. They go, wow, who's this uh, philosopher who wants to go to med school, right? They, they want to meet them, if nothing else, right? Gets you, gets you an interview. Or taking that into law or business. Um, and the fact that you write a lot and, um, and think about these hard problems um, really deeply, it's great training for anything. And I think that's undervalued these days uh, because um, funding agencies and politicians and maybe even upper administrators and universities aren't seeing the value there, but it really is there. Um, I would just say we need to keep academia very broad and diverse and not just narrow solving engineering problems. Um, yeah, that might get you funded better, but it doesn't make the world necessarily better. If we're gonna tackle huge problems like, like climate change, for example, which has a ton of engineering questions. Boy, if you're an engineer who wants to work on climate change and have maybe a minor in ecology or some other related field, marine science, I don't know, pick something, I don't care what. It'll make you better able to think about how to tackle the challenges of global climate and maybe make a more resilient planet and make the world, which is what we all want to do. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think your emphasis on having a breadth of knowledge and being able to uniquely contribute to academic conversations is, is really important. This has been an, an excellent conversation. I know I've learned a ton and I hope everyone in the audience has as well. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch up soon. Yes, thank you all so much for joining us today for the second episode of the research skills season of the Vitamin PhD podcast. Join us next time when we explore publishing with a roundtable of graduate students, faculty, and journalists. And stop by the Vitamin PhD podcast website for more details about the show, as well as past and upcoming episodes. And if you want more information on our guests, including on our graduate student panel, or just resources recommended by our guests, please check out the show notes in the episode description. Talk to you soon. Oh, you're very welcome. If you have more questions, feel free to shoot me an email or we can talk again. Happy to oblige.